Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Performing Arts podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd, and today I'm talking with Tavia Nyong'o about his book, Afrofabulations, The Queer Drama of Black Life. Tavia, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Andy. Could you tell us a bit about the kind of intellectual journey that led you to performance studies? Wow. Um, My intellectual journey... This, um, I was a theater kid, so uh, you could say that I was always interested in performance, but I um, became interested in performance studies as an intellectual matter in graduate school, where uh, my two mentors, uh, Joseph Roach and uh, Paul Gilroy, in uh, distinctive but complementary ways, were... um, inviting new ways of thinking about um, black culture, black music, uh, black performance, and uh, what uh, Joe Roach was calling surrogation. So that really um, was the origin of my interest in performance studies. And then I had the great um, windfall (laughs) of having my first job out of graduate school be in the Department of Performance Studies at NYU, which is by most accounts the top uh, doctoral program in the field um, in the U.S. and uh, spent over a decade there working with some fantastic colleagues and students. Um, So insofar as performance studies is always a um, field that is in evolution or transformation, um, it was really exciting and informative to be, uh, at the same time as I was teaching it, I was also learning it at NYU. And, and I know one of your students was Joshua Chambers Letson, who I had on the program a couple of months ago. And, and you mentioned his book, After the Party, which I interviewed him about as kind of one of the uh, in- inspirations and kind of text and conversation with this book. Could you talk a little bit about kind of your relationship with Joshua and kind of how, how his work informs yours and, and maybe vice versa? Josh was in my very first class of MA students at NYU when I was in my first year as a professor. Um, And uh, he probably won't mind my saying now that he was a bit of a holy terror then. But um, he's (laughs) since grown to become a real friend and comrade and intellectual, um, ideal kind of intellectual, uh, what's the word, you know, um, interlocutor or interlocutor sounding board. Yeah. You know, ideal reader, I guess was the word I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, sure. And, um, yeah, that's, I think what I would, that's how I would sort of answer that question. So, you know, we share, um, a friend, uh, Jose Esteban Munoz, um, which, uh, you know, who was my, uh, friend and mentor and from eight years chair at NYU and was also, 
Josh's uh, uh, dissertation director. Um, and, you know, after the party touches uh, on, you know, the influence of Munoz's work, as does um, Afrofabulations. Um, and um, as does the work that we uh, co-edited uh, together, the um, uh, posthumous book, Sense of Brown uh, by, by Munoz. Yeah, what was that process like of of editing um, Jose's late essays? I mean, that that sounds like it would be a a, a very kind of uh, in some ways difficult intellectual enterprise. In all ways, it was difficult. Um, in other words, there wasn't anything that was easy about it. Um, we had um, uh, the the you know we had to not um, attempt to there was a period in which we couldn't engage the project. Right. Um, sure. Uh, of course. And, um, and then uh, it, it, it came to the point where we could, and we were in the same city on uh, sabbatical the same year. And we felt like we had unconsciously arranged that such that we would have to do this work. Um, and then it became, you know, um, a, um, a real um, process of engaging with, the finitude of any uh, scholar's thinking and work, right? But especially one who died suddenly. Um, uh, we wrote an introduction that attempted to kind of think both about what the project was and um, and what the value of um, work, putting together an incomplete work might be for readers. I should say that um, many, if not the majority of that text did appear in published essay version in Mm -hmm. the two decades prior. So it's not as if it was totally out of circulation. There was a value just to bringing it into one, uh, into one volume because some of those essays appeared in relatively obscure locations. Um, But it was, you know, the, the quintessential labor of love, right. Um, And and also a work of mourning, right. Which is, Mm -hmm one of the uh, topics that um, Munoz, uh, starting with, uh, you know, the first section of his first book, Disidentification, has has had so much to teach us on, you know, queer mourning and melancholia. Now, moving on to this present book, Afrofabulations, that's a, a wonderfully uh, evocative title, Afrofabulations. Could, could you talk a bit about what that term means to you? And I, I know it has many different meanings throughout the book, but could you give us a sense of uh, sort of the constellation of meanings that are held together by that term? Yeah. So here's where I admit that that term was a bit of a reverse formation in the sense that I came up or the term fabulation came upon me and then I worked out what it meant to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, I actually just woke up one day and said, no, I really want to think about fabulation. You know, what does this word mean? Um, And, you know, of course, then I reconstruct the way where it had appeared in my, um, in my reading and thinking Uh, didn't come out of nowhere, of course, but it, it was, um, you know, it was for me um, uh, a, a term that allowed me to move a little past the framework of, um, I would say, in particular, Afrofuturism, um, which mm-hmm. was which is really where a lot of my own um, 
interests were as a um, actually just as a as a person. You know, I was quite interested in race and speculation and science fiction and um, the whole sort of Afrofuturist array of music and cinema and culture. But I, like many people, did not feel that futurity fully encompassed um, what um, was happening or could happen or what my full interest in this area was, right? So, um, so Afrofabulation became a kind of variant um, or a different pathway into what other people would call uh, for futurism. Now, as mm-hmm. I kind of concluded the essay, the, the book, um, you know, a sort of different, you know, set of discourses became increasingly, um, came increasingly to the fore, uh, which is what happens when you spend over 10 years working on a book. And, and that was Afro-pessimism, of course, which is now, you know, yeah. very, very much um, uh, hotly debated. And Frank Wilderson's memoir this summer, this past summer came out of that same title. Um, and, uh, so the book is also a dialogue with that, you know, and, um, and fabulation is meant to offer not a, you know, maybe it is a kind of rebuttal, uh, but certainly a alternative to, um, a pessimistic stance towards the possibilities inherent in, uh, black social life and black, creative capacities, right? An attempt to going back to your first question about performance um, and performativity uh, to revisit the um, sometimes easy dismissal of performance, right? <laughs> you know, or mm-hmm. the efficacy of performance um, by a certain pessimistic uh, uh, sense of uh, the, omnipresence of anti-blackness and Mm -hmm. without without recuperating a straightforward or simplistic sense of performance as agency right uh to develop a richer account of what we're doing you know when we're uh when we're performing you know and 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 um um, one of the meanings or, or, or sort of related words that came to mind for me reading the title was is sort of fabulous and the idea of being fabulous. Is that is that one of the meanings that you're interested in with the title? It is inevitable that any text about <laughs> queerness um, will evoke connotations of the fabulous and fabulosity. And I don't not mean that if that makes sense in the sense i'm not trying to you know uh evade those associations and there are um you know here i i always think in concert or in company with others so there are like wonderful uh people some of whom you possibly have already had on your show but like madison moore and their book fabulous uh the rise of the eccentric uh the creative eccentric um uh, Martin Manalansan, who has been working a wonderful uh, project uh, that is, I think, approaching publication. It's an ethnography of fabulosity in undocumented migrants in Queens, a small community of un- undocumented migrants. So there's a rich literature on fabulosity and um, and uh, its relation to um, to fabulation. 
the um, the connection that I would make, the easiest way I would connect is just to draw on um, the critic Mark Siegel, who I cite in the text, who um, talks about the fabulous as a particularly queer orientation to uh, truth and um, falsity, right? You know, in other words, that when one is in a um, marginalized or minoritized position in which telling the full truth of oneself and one's history would put you in danger, right? And there's a certain kind of need for uh, being fugitive or not fully present, right? Fully transparent to, uh, to the mainstream. And I'm putting all these qualifiers in here because we live in the age of fake news and this horrible, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you know, uh, big lie, right? So I'm trying to distinguish the kind of minoritarian fabulation from that. Um, I think they're actually working quite opposite ways. Um, but this minoritarian uh, fabulation is, as Siegel says, a way of you know telling a story that's neither true nor false, but fabulous, right? In other words, mm-hmm. like the fable, <laughs> right? The fabulous yeah. is is a kind of marvel, right? And it exceeds or subtends that which can be established as true or false, right? And this is again the power of or a power in performance that it is. Um, that it does something in the world, right? It's words that do things. It's gestures uh, that make or unmake worlds. And um, that's, I think, the connection is less a kind of set of, um, I don't know, looks, you know, (laughs) or images that we think of as fabulous, people we think of as fabulous, um, and and more a tactic um, for for navigating a always perilous set of um, conditions. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, texts, if we can use that word expansively, that you talk about in the book is the film Portrait of Jason, which I think really engages with this idea of not true or false, but fabulous in an interesting way. Could, Could you talk a bit about that film for those of our listeners who haven't seen it? Sure. Um, this is in a way like the kernel of the, um, of the, of the book in that when I, when I really worked out what, um, you know, what I had to say and frankly how I felt, you know, about this very vexing, uh, document, it is a text, right? It's a, it's a richly layered social and audiovisual text, um, that um, is one of the first instances of um, what was called or came to be known cinema verite. Um, mm-hmm. It's also, I, you know, these, these sort of, it has been known to be the first or only full length feature film about a black queer protagonist, right? I think up until quite recently, right? So for decades, right? Jason Holiday mm-hmm. was, um, a kind of singular figure in the history of cinema. Um, and so that is very uh, powerful. That makes the film very powerful. It makes the film very, very fabulous, right? You know, and at the same time, 
because of its um, psychodrama, the uh, no spoiler alerts, I guess, if you haven't watched the film or haven't read no, the book. No, go ahead. Right? I think but... that's it. It's been decades. I think <laughs> you go ahead and spoil it. Decades, right? uh, well, yeah. I don't want you to spoil my book. You know, I want you to read the book, right? Because in sure. a way, you know, um, but I guess my argument would be, you know, that there's been a kind of either or around um, Jason Holiday, the black queer uh, sort of protagonist or subject of this film and Shirley Clark, the filmmaker who lures him, let's say to her apartment in the Chelsea hotel and tries to get him to tell the story of his life and gets him drunk and high all with the kind of aim, all, all like, you know, through a sort of 12 hour shoot all with the aim of breaking down his defenses and getting him to expose himself in a way that, she never fully explains the uh, animus uh, behind, right? Um, mm-hmm. And part of the archival work that I others have done has been to argue that, in fact, there's a uh, love triangle, a triangulation of desire between uh, uh, Jason Holiday and Shirley Clark and her then partner, Carl Lee, uh, who was a... Um, uh, actor and kind of like a mat- matinee idol, uh, but also um, a um, uh, troubled in some ways as well, right? And um, is 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 heard in the background of the film. So again, there's lots of layers uh, in terms of race and gender and um, sexuality that are being sort of parsed in this film. And um, another thing that interested me in the chapter was not simply offering a reading of the film, which has been done, right? Um, And I offer my own, right? But thinking about how it is sort of transmitted over time. This is something that performance studies, although it attends to like the live and the performed, has also had a lot to say about the transmission of, um, of memory, right? In a variety of media, right? Um, so what happens to the performance that that Jason Holiday gives in that film? It, um, among other things, it's a version of a performance that he was uh, an act, a theater act that he was developing. He was he had a cabaret act that he wanted to uh, to stage, which he I think he got to stage once, but never fully right. Um, and um, so uh, there's itself a kind of performativity. Uh, in 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 what he discloses and withholds from Shirley Clark, and um, but there's also the way in which the film was um, for a long time a kind of classic of the underground and accumulated a lot of um, it's like, it's like sedimentation, right? You know, and the um, in recent years there was a move to uh, both restore the film and to go back and do uh, a lot of archival work to sort of establish, you know, um, establish facts. And um, this is maybe going a little bit afield from the, um, uh, from the books I ended up not writing about in the book, but it's interesting and relevant that, um, uh, 
that another filmmaker um, made a fictional film uh, about the making of uh, Portrait of Jason, uh, uh, Stephen Winter, and um, took a lot of creative license with this um, scenario in part to sort of expose the ways in which there was a dynamic of exploitation in how um, this white moneyed female director had treated this black uh, queer unhoused um, uh, subject. So the, the, um, the, the company, the production house that had restored uh, the film and the kind of, in some ways, were trying to burnish Clark's le- legacy really went after this fictional film in a really mean way and tried mm. to blackball the film and wrote horrible editorials about it. And it was a really revealing um, moment for how the fabulous has a dark side as well, right? Like, something that presents itself as fiction, right? Um, but nonetheless touches up against, you know, the underside of, um, of a film that, you, uh, that someone else wants to kind of present as, as pretty or perfect um, is, um, you know, that that, that that is also what I call the queer drama of black life, right? Black life always comes with drama, right? If you're not ready for it, <laughs> you're not really engaged, you know, in the um, aesthetic sociality of, of, of black life, right? And um, in many ways, I think the people who were kind of restoring the film weren't ready for that drama, right? They wanted to think of this as a um, uh, as part of the oeuvre of this director, Shirley Clark, who they were trying to bring back into the canon, certainly for sexist reasons, she had been excluded, um, but but without really having a fully intersectional understanding mm-hmm. of how she had uh, how she had treated uh, Jason Holiday and how people uh, felt about that, you know. Um, and 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 part of the restoration was like literally lightening the film, right? Yes, and I make a lot about I do a lot with this. This is why I say read this read the read the uh, chapter um it's lightening the film it's it's i say uh, taking away the sedimentation um there's a lot of in 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 prior um uh, uh, uh prior prints i suppose of the film uh prior to the restoration um you see a lot of what's what are called in uh, technical terms crushed blacks right where basically the contrast is very high right and um, which is itself a kind of aesthetic. And when I did research into the, in the archive, um, I looked at some of the release um, materials around the film's original, um, it was at MoMA, it was first uh, screened. And, um, you know, Clark herself, who, you know, presumably supervised these materials or had some say in them, right, was using these very starkly contrasted, you know, using crushed blacks mm-hmm. in her own, you know, sense of what the aesthetic of the film was. So, it's not out of, you know, again, that sense that over, over time we would get that a film and its point of origin would become further away and more mythic and there would be layers, um, uh, a trace of its circulation. Um, this is an argument that I, I very much draw from the film theorist Lucas Hildebrand, um, who writes about um, 
the, uh, the, the evidence of circulation in underground film, uh, to kind of strip that away is to kind of strip away some of that queer story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And to sort of establish authoritative text. Um, and, and what that, and then when you then add to that, setting yourself up as a defender of that text against other creative reinterpretations, right? There's a problem I see, right? For how a, um, a story, a black queer story necessarily transmits itself through, um, through these critical, uh, fabulations. Uh, another artist you discuss, I believe in the same chapter, is Adrian Piper, um, who is an artist that I love a lot. <laughs> and, and you especially uh, discuss her mythic being persona, um, which I think has usually been viewed as kind of a, a, a piece about gender. But you kind of want it to be uh, a, a more complicated kind of critique, right? I do think it's about gender, um, but uh, and it's the next chapter actually. It's it's a mythic being, and it's I, I wanted to think about the um, the potential. I wanted to think about black exploitation with as if Adrian Piper were part of the audience for that moment in black cinema, and um, so. I, on the one hand, wanted to darken the mythic being, right? You know, like think about the ways this is a sort of figure drawn from black exploitation. You know, she, in her um, in her journals, gives an inspiration for that uh, persona. Uh, a moment where she encounters a black exploitation poster in the New York City subway, mm-hmm. and kind of places herself imaginatively in the um in from the standpoint of someone to whom that poster would appeal in other words she has a sort of feminist critique of the kind of uh visualization of um femininity and like say a, a foxy brown um type movie poster but nonetheless rather than simply you know uh she doesn't stop at that critique but that she then sort of uses that to to generate this alternate persona whom I uh, then argue in the throughout the um, through the chapter is in many ways a um, a trans uh, a trans figure um, in the sense that uh, she is um, n- more than putting herself in drag. She's also um, reimagining and re. Um, restaging her own um, life from a male perspective and, and, mm-hmm. um, and across a range of media. And, um, and so this is, this is something that I then look at in relation to the opening of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song by Melvin uh, Van Peebles, which was the film that kind of launched black exploitation and which everybody forgets or didn't know starts with this incredibly queer and trans 10 minutes in which Sweetback um, uh, is, you know, encounters this figure who literally transforms uh, uh, and um, uh, uh, changes sex, you know, um, and, um, and there are multiple other uh, queer figures uh, throughout, throughout that film. 
And um, so thinking about sort of the queerness of that moment of um, the, uh, on the one hand, the rise of conceptual art and performance art with Adrian Piper and then with um, uh, black exploitation and, and, and black nationalists representation in film. And, um, you know, as a way of understanding that the, um, the, the things that we are dealing with in the present, right, in terms of the uh, queerness and trans and non-binary have a, have a genealogy in black culture, right, that it's not simply about mm-hmm. kind of repudiating a past that didn't understand these issues or that was overly sexist and misogynist and homophobic. I mean, it was, but so is the present, you know, and so will the future be, right? right? Unfortunately, <laughs> right? We're not dealing mm-hmm. with a human species that, you know, lacks these traits, right? Um, so instead, trying to uh, understand a kind of, or develop a mode of reading Black performance, whether it's um, in, in cinema or in music or in performance art, you know, a variety of media uh, that, um, you know, uh, that manages to subvert, you know, sex and gender uh, normativity. It's part of the reason why people don't often think of Adrian Piper in the context of exploitation, despite that being kind of the explicit reference of the mythic being persona, the fact that a lot of people don't think of Adrian Piper as black. Well, um, you'd have to tell me who those people are. I mean, I think that, I mean, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, no, I mean, in a serious way, like she had a, a, a performance where she would hand people cards informing them that she was black because she often was in situations where people were talking about black people like they weren't in the room. Oh, right. Yeah. That, so the whole, um, Yes, which the, is after the, the mythic being. I think. I think that's like at the late seventies. I'm I, I'm getting maybe the chronology <laughs> jumbled up no, from the, seeing her the, retrospective. At uh, anyway, the chronology is right. You know, I mean, and the calling card performance was given. I don't know. I don't quote me on exactly when it started, but it was certainly by the eighties that she was doing it. And yeah, you know, passing for white is a you know was a clear um, is. is Adrian Piper is still around, right? Um, a, a, a reality in an experience in, in, in her own biography that then become the, becomes thematized in, in her work, right? Um, there's this, I think, you know, famous, I think, to enthusiasts of the work of Adrian Piper series of drawings in which the self-portraits with my Negro features exaggerated, you know, like where she kind of experiments mm-hmm. with what it, what what actually that that moment of perception is, and of course that the video corner right where um, it is a long uh, monologue uh, on video where uh, she talks precisely about. Um, I think the first line of it is, "I'm black." Now let's deal with the social fact, right? So needing to make uh, performative utterances about race is something that I guess I would say is queer about, <laughs> you know, about Adrian Piper, right? Um, and her particular relationship to, um, to her own, um, you know, you know to, to her own uh, blackness. There's a qualification there, which maybe you don't need to get into, which is in recent years, um, she has 
where at one point she retired from blackness, but that's itself. It may, it may have been a kind of stunt. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, there, there, she has always had a very wry and um, skeptical relationship to the way in which identity, whether we're thinking of um, blackness uh, or femininity, uh, is used, you know, both to sort of exclude, but also can be a source of, um, uh, you know, fetishizing or um, minimizing, you know, like mm-hmm. um, a particular person's work. So it's it's complicated. She's she's a contra- complex and contradictory figure. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why people still still write about these pieces from the seventies today. Oh yeah, yeah, and they don't they're the gift that keeps on giving mm-hmm. um another artist you write about is uh regina galindo um and it's, it's interesting that you write about her because <laughs> i actually just had a conversation with diana taylor where we talked about her work a, 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 you know a different piece but uh yeah last week i talked to diana and now i'm talking to you about uh, the same artist could you describe kind of how her work and specifically the piece that you talk about uh piedra uh fits into the the kind of larger argument of the book yeah, um, no, that's a great question, and it's it's one that, in a way, leads into the work that I did subsequently around editing *Sense of Brown*, right? Because it um, calls upon uh, us, I suppose, to think about the entanglement of blackness and brownness, right? And so that mm-hmm. particular chapter is an attempt to think the um, uh, to, to place into kind of proximity, um, uh, to write together, right into the same chapter, right? Um, Kara Walker's A Subtlety and uh, Regina Golinda's uh, Piedra. And these are, you know, two very distinct pieces. I'll focus on Piedra since you asked a question about that one because it was, um, you know, it is a piece that uh, is, uh, is performance art, right? And it, um, I won't describe it fully, uh, but it, it um, I was drawn to write about it because it, like a subtlety, was attempting this always tricky uh, uh, aesthetic of, 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 of visibilizing histories of violence at the risk of aestheticizing them, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so it's not itself like there's no, well, there's very little seeming violence in the piece. It's a very simple, contained uh, piece in which the artist places her body almost into the landscape, right? Um, you, you approach the performance and she's already in kind of formation as a small rock or stone. And um, I guess I do have to describe it a little bit. There's a sort of <laughs> sequence of events in which plants in the audience step forward and urinate um, on, her, on her back 
revealing the fact that this black um, uh, material that's covering her is, you know, it starts to dissolve it, right? And mm-hmm. um, the, um, the the sort of the thing about the the performance I had everyone sort of, you know, fortuitous is that as it later transpired, there were sort of three men who were supposed to be doing this, right? And so there was a very sort of clear yeah. um, choreography of, of histories of violence towards women and femicide. And, um, and the male performers were thinking about their own role, uh, white male performers. But before the third could come forward, a woman in the audience decided on her own initiative to uh, come on to the to come up and urinate, <laughs> and right. um, so which which the performer couldn't know because she was kind of um, right. Uh, uh, Her um, face is to the ground. Yeah, yeah. She's so she's cold, yeah. right? So she doesn't know. She just knows that the, the, that the the sequence of events has been complete, right? And then in the end, is she gets up and leaves, right? Um, so it's like again the quintessential you know instance of you know, talk about like the first happening where everyone had a different account of what happened, right? It, mm-hmm. You know, everyone has a very different perspective. <laughs> I mean, we, the, this, the, bare, the bare sequence of events, you know, can be reconstructed and it was highly, highly documented unlike, you know, early happenings, right? But nevertheless, despite the documentation, there was this real sense of multi-perspectival resonance and echo, you know, of what this performance did, you know, to this audience, in Brazil. And I tried to relate that to the ways in which Kara Walker kind of choreographed her audience in and through this, I think, much more prominent mm-hmm. um, and large scale, certainly uh, a piece, a subtlety um, that I think probably your listeners are at least somewhat familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and to sort of think about connecting through histories, extractive histories of um, sugar, um, plantation, you know, um, and, um, you know, again, without conflating blackness and brownness, right, um, thinking about the ways in which they might be, be fruitfully entangled. In, mm-hmm. in the way we think about um, and how we approach um, minoritarian performance. This is something that I think I learned from uh, Munoz, again, just to briefly mention, you know, his own, his own mm-hmm. engagement with, um, uh, among other thinkers, CLR James, uh, Fred Moten, thinkers from, the, from the, the Black radical tradition. And something that kind of draws a subtlety together with Piedra is that in both cases, there's kind of this like non-consensual engagement with the piece, right? That in in a subtlety, there were all these pictures that people were posting on Instagram of kind of mm-hmm. making lewd gestures toward the creature, toward this, you know, uh, uh, toward the the, the main um, sculpture, I guess. Uh, the and then in, yeah. Yeah, the sugar sphinx. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I wanted to call it the subtlety, but that's actually the name of the whole kind of installation, not just the the central sugar sphinx. Uh, mm-hmm. And then in in uh, Galindo's piece, there's the the you know non consensual urination uh, of of the third 
you know, participant, I guess you could call it, which in another case we might just call assault. Um, so, sure. so how does that sort of like change the meaning of a performance when, or, or, or of a, of an installation when the pr- supposed audience is kind of participating in the, in the piece in a way that it runs contrary to the artist's intention? Does that change what the piece means? Well, I think before we answer that, I think we do have to establish whether, in fact, the artist did not intend it to happen. So like in the case mm-hmm. of um, Kara Walker, she later released a video called An Audience, which was a documentation of um, the final day of the exhibit. And um, it was exhibited alongside a series of drawings uh, that she did one of which was basically a drawing of one of those Instagrams in which people had, you know, sort of uh, 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 sexualized the, um, the, um, the Sphinx. And, you know, she said something like, of course, this is what, of course this was going to happen. Right. So, you know, knowing Walker's yeah. work and knowing her deep, investment in complicity i want to say right you know like her knowledge that Mm -hmm. art proceeds from black feminist art proceeds from this from this place of complicity with violence uh what uh, christina sharp calls the sadomasochism of everyday life right that that's not a um you know free pass to do anything right you know uh yeah. certainly right but it is you know it is it is uh it does call upon us to think very kind of deeply about the sort of intentional gestures that artists make to to turn to piedra you know to try to sort of expose histories of violence right to draw in uh the audience into you know their slash our complicity Right. While then also, you know, um, risking uh, misfire, risking, you know, um, Mm -hmm. every, you know, this happened at the Hemispheric Institute. Um, And since you interviewed uh, uh, Diana Taylor, you probably talked a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. There was not a single, you know, Encuentro that I ever went to. I think they're now kind of on pause. Right that did not have some massive, massive <laughs> controversy, right? I mean, this is the drama of performance, right? That had very much to do with violated boundaries, with, um, you know, uh, cultural appropriation or, um, um, you know, non-consensual witnessing of things that people prefer not to, you know, like it's, it's I'm sure. not minimizing any of this, but to say that this is, um, this is in a way that the stuff and um, what I valued in um, actually in both what I valued about both Walker and, um, and, um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, Galindo. Uh, Galindo, Galindo, sorry. Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, brain is that there, maybe it's my own aesthetic preference, but there's a certain, degree of formal care, you know, and even minimalism, right? Even though this is a maximalist piece in the case of a subtlety, right? But this is very, very specific set of gestures, right? That allow 
even if you hate it, even if you want to react against it, right? It allows you to know what you're reacting to. And mm-hmm. that is something that that's another point of, um, of comparison between the, between the two, you know, for instance, just the last thing I'll say on that, in addition to the large massive sugar sphinx, which is really made out of styrofoam, it turns out not sugar, <laughs> but it's coated in sugar. Um, there were these sort of smaller um, sort of molasses, I guess you'd call them sugar, sugar babies. I think they were called, right. That were, that were made out of a kind of um, um, uh, sculptured sugar that uh, then broke over the course of the exhibit in part in response to the heat of the summer, but also the uh, presence of the audience, right? So this the very, you know... The moisture of their breath. The moisture, the breath, you know, and, um, you know, this is for me where I lost it, right? Because it's if there was ever a kind of more, I don't even, it was even intentional, right? How could it be intentional? It was an experiment, right? But this is what happened. Like she made these sculptures and they broke in this particular way. And, um, and it just conveyed so much about that, um, what I call the dark time, right? Of, um, of, you know, the afterlives of slavery and colonialism and uh, and kind of condensed condensed it into this really powerful uh, small small gesture, and the small gesture of of Piedra was was a similar had a similar for me held for me a similar kind of power. And do you feel like part of the the power of that is kind of this idea that like the presence of an audience is in some way bad for the performer? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question to contemplate it uh, after a year of uh, quarantine in which uh, performers are perhaps desperate for audiences. Um, I don't know. Um, At the time, perhaps I was thinking about the ways in which audiences aren't always um, good and the exposure of Black art and... um, black artists to um, maybe even overexposure, right. To uh, not just audiences, but to mediation. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Which is, you know, uh, part of what happened with, with a subtlety is something that in a way, now that you mentioned that I probably would say that looking to artists like Adrian Piper, who, stage their own kind of withdrawal, <laughs> you know, um, or alternatively Jason Holiday, right. Who really remains a mystery, no matter how much we tried to establish, you know, basic facts about his life, such as how old he was, you know, what his, his birth name was, mm-hmm. you know, where he's, where his, uh, where he died, when and where he died. Um, you can establish these facts, but they don't, they don't really tell you the meaningful thing you want to know about, um, why he is significant. So yes, I do think that the, um, the, the desire of the audience, the hunger of the audience is, is a question that I think we all kind of increasingly grapple with, right. In particularly, so given that, um, 
you know, contemporary, uh, contemporary culture encourages us all to be sort of constantly rendering our bodies available for <laughs> as many audiences as possible, you know, on, mm-hmm. you know, social media and elsewhere. Well, Tavia, it's been such a pleasure talking to you about your your book, Afrofabulations. I've already taken up uh, so much of your time, but I just have one more question, uh, which is, do you have anything that you're working on now that you want our audience to know about? Yes, uh, thank you for that. And thank you for, um, just in general, for giving me this opportunity. Um, and um, I feel, you know, so uh, what am I working on now? I am working... Uh, on two things. I'm what I hope will be a short book on uh, Afrofuturism and Afropessimism. And, uh, but the, that, that, that book, which I'm tentatively calling no world is also uh, maybe it's an attempt to square the circle, right. Between, you know, futurism and pessimism by pointing to their shared, interest in sort of conjuring the end of the world, right? Or mm-hmm. uh, a beyond um, or a negation of the world as we know it. So, um, and that is, you know, just drawing on a range of um, uh, examples from the past uh, four decades, but it'll be a short book that's intended, unlike this long one that you just read, um, that it's, that hopefully will be addressed to um kind of like almost an introductory college uh, mm-hmm. readership. And then I have another project that's always kind of on the back burner, but I do write a lot about music. Um, and um, I wrote a piece for The Guardian when Little Richard uh, passed this past summer. Um, Little Richard is actually someone I've been obsessed with since I was a graduate student and have written about repeatedly since I was a graduate student. Um, he may be the other answer to your first question as to what got me interested in performance studies was needing to understand and explain what is he doing. Yeah, what is he doing? How you know? How does he? You know? How does this make sense? Um, how do we have to change the story we tell about uh, popular music? Um, and rock and roll such that a figure like little Richard, um, uh, can fit into it. And, um, so, um, so I'm working on that now and I think it won't be a biography of little Richard per se, but it will be something about, um, black, uh, queer and trans, uh, voices and musicality in, um, 20th century American music popular music that sounds fantastic well well you'll have to let me know when uh when those projects come out um tavia Nyong'o, thanks so much for uh being on the show thank you very much for having me andy board and to talk to you soon